0: Welcome to The Green Investor. I'm Caleb Silver, the Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia, and your guide on our journey together into what it means to be a green investor today, how to navigate the terrain of investing vehicles and platforms, and where this investing theme is headed. On the show this week, despite the surge in energy prices and fossil fuel stocks, money has started flowing back into the ESG sector. We'll break down those flows. Plus, Janice Henderson leans into climate literacy as part of its efforts to educate its customers. We get into what that really means with Marika Christopher the Senior Director of Product and Strategy for ESG for Janice Henderson. That's all coming up. But first, this podcast, of course, is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in the securities mentioned on this podcast, and some of our guests may sell or market the securities mentioned on this podcast. But all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions let's do the news shall we spring has brought money flows back into esg and sustainable funds and exchange traded products according to etf gi which tracks money flows Assets invested in active ETFs listed globally reached a record $453 billion at the end of March. Actively managed ETFs gathered net inflows of $10 billion during the month or up 2.6% from the prior month. While that doesn't sound like a lot, keep in mind, oil and mining stocks have been leading the market all year due to rising commodity prices and the invasion of Ukraine. ESG and renewable energy-related stocks have been in a deep downtrend all year. Still, Assets invested in active ETFs listed globally reached that $453 billion record at the end of March. $116 billion in net inflows were gathered in the past 12 months. That's the 24th straight month of consecutive net inflows. Here are the top five ESG and sustainable exchange-traded funds here in the U.S. and their performance so far this year, and it is not very good. The ICLN, iShares Global Clean Energy ETF that has $5 billion in assets is down 8.6%. The Invesco Solar ETF, ticker TAN, with $2.17 billion in assets is down nearly 17%. The First Trust Clean Edge Green Energy Index Fund, QCLN, is the ticker, with two billion in assets is down nineteen point eight percent and the first trust NICE ARCA Biotechnology Index Fund is down ten point seven nine percent and the ALPS Clean Energy ETF with about six hundred ninety-four million dollars is down eighteen percent. Commodities trading giant Cargill expects at least some of its freight vessels to be powered by clean marine fuel before the end of this decade. In 2020, Cargill shipped almost 200 million tons of iron ore, grains, and other goods around the world with as many as 700 vessels on the water at any given time. All those carriers are powered by oil, specifically HFO or heavy crude oil. Heavy fuel oil is a residual fuel incurred during the distillation of crude oil. It's used to generate motion and or heat, and it has a particularly high viscosity and density, think peanut butter not olive oil, and it spews more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than Germany and the Netherlands combined. The green vessels will likely be at the larger end of the size scale, although Cargill hasn't specified how many ships will be converted. Cargill's fleet includes giant cape-sized vessels typically carrying about 180,000 tons of commodities, including ores, coal, and grain, as well as Panamax, Supermax, and handy-sized ships. The International Maritime Organization, shipping's global regulator, has yet to produce a full plan for wide-scale organization in line with the Paris agreement. The Environmental Protection Agency released a draft white paper last week that gives the public the first clues into the possible requirements the agency might include in a new rule that seeks to rein in climate-warning emissions from natural gas power plants, the nation's leading source of electricity. Native American tribes that generate power from natural gas and power companies could be required to adopt these new rules if approved to make their gas fire plants more efficient and cleaner. Those options include building hybrid plants that run on both gas and renewable energy, implementing carbon capture technology to reduce overall emissions, as well as phasing in the use of hydrogen gas, which burns without emitting carbon dioxide. Many of these technologies, however, have been criticized by climate activists who say they aren't as effective as proponents claim and distract from the more important task of transitioning away from fossil fuels altogether. Millions of more Americans are breathing unhealthy air compared to just a few years ago, in large part due to climate change, according to the American Lung Association. The association released its latest annual State of the Air Report, which evaluates county-level air quality data across the nation over three-year periods. This year's report, which looked at 2018, 2019, and 2020, found that 137 million Americans were exposed to unhealthy levels of air pollution. That's 2.1 million more people than recorded in the last report, and nearly 9 million people when looking specifically at exposure to fine-suit pollution, or what they call PMT.5. Those increases were driven largely by a surge in wildfires across the West, according to the study. The study also found that despite overall decreases in ground-level ozone pollution, which consists of nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds, lower-income people continue to face disproportionate exposure to unhealthy air and the associated health impacts. More than 80% of homeowners who have flood insurance are set to see rates climb, according to a new report from the real estate firm Redfin. The report also found that majority Hispanic neighborhoods are more likely to see their flood insurance premium rise than any other ethnic or racial neighborhood group, with 84% of policyholders facing increases. When the Federal Emergency Management Agency rolled out its major overhaul to its National Flood Insurance Program last April, it promised that the bigger, richer homes would bear the brunt of premium increases, while almost 90% of policyholders would see their costs stay stable, decrease. That does not seem to be playing out that way. The National Flood Insurance Program serves 3.4 million single-family homes, most of which are in high-risk flood areas. The program was created in 1968 to cover the homes that private insurers either didn't want to cover or would only cover at a relatively high cost. The government offered more modest premiums, but the result is that over time, the program has gone broke. It's got more than $20 billion in debt, in part because of climate change-related phenomenon such as rising sea levels and more storms. Expect more showdowns on climate goals and sustainable investing inside shareholder meetings this spring as proxy advisors are joining the battle. Institutional shareholder services, one of the largest proxy firms that advises institutional investors on how to vote their shares at shareholder meetings, urge investors in Occidental Petroleum and the refiner Valero Energy to back proposals to align the company's targets for cutting greenhouse gas emissions, including those of their customers with the Paris Accord, according to Bloomberg. ISS is likely to issue the same recommendation for eight, eight other oil companies including ExxonMobil and Chevron which are facing similar votes according to follow this which put forward the proposal listeners will remember that Mark von Balla vol- listeners will remember that Mark von Balla follow this was a guest on the Green Investor a couple of months ago and now he's bringing those initiatives to the shareholder meetings Somebody cue the Prince playlist because the Corvette is about to go electric. General Motors, which makes the vet, told CNBC this week that an electrified Corvette will be on the market as soon as next year. An electrified Corvette will be available first with a fully electric Corvette to follow soon after. But the traditional Corvette with a highly powered internal combustion engine will remain available for sale. GM has said it plans to launch 30 electric vehicles globally by the end of 2025 and exclusively sell electric vehicles by the middle of of next decade. What is your money manager doing about climate risk and sustainable investing? Most of us invest our money through a mutual fund company, an asset manager, or a financial advisor. And while so many of them claim to offer sustainable and green investing solutions, how do you know that they're really investing along with your beliefs? What's really inside their investment products? And where's the company itself stand on those issues that might matter most to you? Janice Henderson Investors has had a global sustainable equities team for the past 30 years. With over $400 billion in assets under management, Janice wields a pretty big stick on behalf of individual investors like us. Marika Christopher is the Senior Director of Product Strategy and ESG for Janice Henderson. She joins us this week on The Green Investor to talk about their approach to ESG and sustainable investing welcome to The Green Investor.
1: Thanks so much, Caleb. I'm happy to be here.
0: Tell us about your job. What do you do as the Senior Director of Product and Strategy in ESG?
1: It's a motley crew of things that I do on a daily basis. I like to split it into to two pieces, one being that product strategy side. So really thinking about innovation, thinking about where the puck is going in the next three to five years when it comes to ESG and sustainable solutions around the globe. And that's going to mean different things for different uh, regions that we serve. You know, you look to the European market and there's a lot of focus on regulation there and the asset flows um, moving based on SFDR and other regulations that are coming down the pike. And then you look to more nascent markets like here in the U.S. and Australia and APAC, and you're seeing a product landscape that is really waiting to be shaped by the regulator, and perhaps is going to be more driven by by the investors, by the players themselves. Um, So that's part of my job. It's really just dreaming up what's going to happen. And then the second piece is on the ESG side for our distribution force and, and on the corporate side. So what that means is building out an ESG strategy, a focus area, how we can support our sales teams when it comes to ESG it's not only the products that they're selling, but how they sell them. Are they well-trained enough to know the nomenclature region by region, channel by channel? Do we have the right thought leadership pieces out there, the right content to draw the reader in? We're also constantly looking at the corporate element of it. I I think something that's interesting about sustainable investing is that any other product trend that you had in the investment space, it was all about, well, who is the portfolio manager and what's the performance? And there weren't too many questions asked about, well, who's the asset manager? Who are they really behind the scenes? And with sustainable investing, that cloak has been opened. And there are a million questions coming towards us around, well, what is Janice Henderson doing from an ESG perspective? How do they manage their own ESG risks? What do their de metrics and targets look like? And that matters to me just as much as the product that you're putting out. So it's been these parallel work streams that we've had going between product strategy, corporate strategy, sales strategy, to ensure those are all in line. And meet the needs that, that our clients are looking for.
0: Right. It's not just what you're buying, but who you're buying from. That's so important. That's why that 30-year history is important. It probably goes deeper than that when you think about the, the origins of the firm. So as a retail investor, how am I experiencing your products? Am I experiencing it through ETFs? Am I experiencing it through index funds or mutual funds that you may build or offer or offer through other, uh, other companies?
1: We like to look at this from a product agnostic, product wrapper agnostic perspective. So We launched a suite of ESG ETFs last September 2021 that offer five different ETFs, a couple on the equity side and a couple on the fixed income side create that puzzle, if you will, where you could fit all those together and create your green portfolio if you were a retail investor. We also have a couple of mutual funds that are out there, including the one that's been around for about 30 years, Global Sustainable Equity. And we have a few extensions off of that when it comes to international sustainable equity and US sustainable equity. So those are options from a product perspective today. I I think it's important to note that you know there are a number of products out there that have been incorporating sustainable factors for a number of years that may not have ESG or sustainability in the name. And as we go down this path of um, global regulators taking different forks in the road on how they define what ESG means and what sustainability means, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of confusion, a cloud of confusion until there's clarity. And so I'll, I'll note that, that, that for some, you know, when you're looking for sustainable investments, you may have to go a little deeper than the name that's out there. You know, you look at the top 10, top 20, quote unquote, ESG funds that are offered out there. If you look at like a Morningstar report. And over half of them don't even have ESG or sustainability in the name.
0: Yeah. The nomenclature is getting murkier. And then greenwashing is out there plenty in the industry. You're you're absolutely right about that. Janice Henderson is an active investor. You don't just chase indexes. You build portfolios. You build ETFs. What's your criteria on building those for ESG, but more particularly sustainable investing oriented investors like me and like our listeners?
1: You know, when you're, you're thinking about active management, a lot of folks go immediately to Oh, you're, you're going to engage with someone and immediately divest if they're doing something that isn't on your list of good or if they're on the list of bad things. And I, I think it's important for investors to understand that engagement from an active manager truly means engagement. That is a, a profound relationship where you've got portfolio managers meeting on a quarterly or biannual basis with these companies. To truly understand not only from an ESG perspective, but operationally, what does management look like? What does their strategy three, four, five years out look like? What plans do they have in place to make the changes needed to make it a long term valuable company? So I think that's so important for, for investors to understand is if you've got funds that have been out there for years at a time and they have been engaged with these management companies for that long. And you might be saying, "Oh gosh, well maybe they should, you know, disengage, and we've got to divest from that area." There are some deeper conversations going on there where they're searching for long-term value, and they see that, oh, it may not look quite right today, but we know two years out from now, there's an entire change in track, and we feel comfortable with the area that the management company is, that management of the company is taking this, this organization. Now it's going to be different product by product. Depending on what you're looking for as a sustainable investor, you may end up with different kinds of product, different kinds of exclusions, if you will, a different kind of engagement areas of importance. Um, I, I think it's important not to lose sight of the fact that ESG or sustainable investing isn't just about the E. I think the S gets forgotten often, and, and I think it will you know, come more to the forefront here over the coming years. It's just harder to measure right now. But you are going to see a lot of funds that focus there, and there's a lot deeper engagement that has to take place from an active management perspective to see those changes over likely five to 10 years.
0: I want to hit more on this active responsibility. You make it clear that Janus doesn't exclude companies that don't score well on ESG-related issues. You engage with them. How effective is that when companies kind of feel slow to change? And I'm looking at areas, you, know, you mentioned the S, that's the societal part of ESG, the G, the governance part of it. But for the purposes of this conversation, the environmental, the climate risk part of it, which is becoming more severe every single day, how effective is that engagement when you know the company has just historically not been doing the, the right thing by the environment and may have a plan, a five, 10-year plan? How does that work?
1: I think that's a great question. There's, there's two camps of thought there, right? You can say, we're in a classroom and we've got a bully and we can decide to just not speak to the bully and put them in the corner. Does that really change the dynamics of the classroom? The other train of thought, which is engagement, is all right, it's going to take a lot of time and effort and planning and strat- different strategies, but we're going to engage with this bully and we're going to figure out what makes them tick, help them to understand why our cause is important to them and to the longevity of their firm because I, I think we all forget we've all got our own goals our own purposes right and what we're looking to achieve may not be the main focus of the management of another company so we've got to flip that conversation to say we know you're trying to achieve x and to do so we believe you need to deliver on xyz If you start flipping that script and finding out the reasons they were the way they were and the things that you'd like to change and how to get them there, I think that becomes a different conversation. I also had read an article a few years back that I found fascinating around the fact that if you start excluding some of the largest companies in the world because of their e-behavior in the past, not, not being best in class, let's say, and they hold... 70% 70% of the world's GDP and you just exclude them, are you really making a change in the world? You're making a change on the 30% that you're focusing on, but is that enough to actually impart change in this global environment that we cannot ignore the other 70%? I found that a very interesting way to think about it. You know, you, you don't necessarily want to say, oh, well, we'll talk to them because we have to, but, but we do if you're simply ignoring all of this capital, trillions and trillions in capital, wouldn't it make a bigger change to change them than, than to change the people that are already on board with your cause? That's a question that's always in my mind.
0: Yeah, you make a good point. And, and listeners of the podcast know we've had Follow This on there. They actively buy shares of companies so that they can uh, get involved. And we've had engine number no. one, a much more intense activist investor here. And then we've had the divest Harvards of of the world that you know that are trying to push institutions to get out of companies that are uh, exacerbating climate change and climate risk. Like us, you, Janice Henderson, you believe climate risks are business risks, but they're still widely misunderstood. What are the most common misperceptions or gaps in knowledge that retail investors have about climate risks?
1: When you go through business school, you are taught about legal risks and operational risks and management risks, marketing risks, reputational risk. And you go through a whole slew of classes to understand identification of the risks and materiality of it how important is it how how big of an impact could it have on the firm now i went to college years ago so things may have changed a bit but there was never a focus on climate risk per se there might be physical risk in certain industries you know if you're in the fossil fuel industry or oil and gas or you're in real estate there may be physical risks that you assess as part of your, your business risk assessment, but climate per se isn't necessarily part of that. And if you start to really get down to it, even industries like investments or retail can be affected by the climate. And, and I, well, the the COVID-19 pandemic certainly wasn't good for a number of reasons. I do think it helped highlight. The fact that something that seems so out there can actually affect your day-to-day. And we saw that with supply chains, which again aligns right with, with climate risks. It doesn't matter what kind of industry you're in, climate can affect supply chain. And, and I think that's probably the biggest myth that's out there is that it can't touch every industry. That it's only focused on, oh, fossil fuels and the energy sector. It can touch everything. You think about food and agriculture, and someone building out their agricultural area in, you know, northern Mexico, and they think through all the business risks of, well, you know, from a legal perspective, how are we going to handle this being in another country? And could the government potentially take the land away from us? And from a reputational perspective, are Americans going to be upset that we are uh, building this factory and all of this out in Mexico rather than the states? Um, you go through all those risks in your head, but you don't think through, well, gosh, over the last you know six years has been the lowest amount of rainfall, and yet there's been huge storms that dump 48 inches, and the, the roads have been completely demolished, and so our trucks can't get through to actually send the product up to the states. You know all of those those things that you don't think would affect your industry that, quite frankly, do.
0: Great point. And so you guys are really into climate literacy, something I know you care a lot about. We try to break a lot of those things down here at Investopedia and on The Green Investor, especially the acronyms. And this is an alphabet soup of acronyms in the sustainable investing industry. But when you say climate literacy, what are you really talking about?
1: I am talking about each organization ensuring that their entire employee base Now it's going to start at management, right? It's going to start at the top. Understand what climate means for their organization, for their industry, for their supply chain. You have to be able to be literate enough in all of those other operational risks and opportunities, all of those other management risks and opportunities, the same way you have to be literate in climate. And this is talking about not only the risks, so, what are the hazards that it could present to our business line, to our operations? But also some of the opportunities there. We talked a bit about active management and engagement and changing course for some of the largest offenders out there. But you know you're going to see real change with perhaps a mix of both climate mitigation strategies and climate adaptation. Right? You're going to have to employ both, most likely. And so there are opportunities within climate literacy to change the way your company's doing business and actually save money or improve productivity. Or improve client and employee relationships. And when you think about getting that climate literacy down to every level of the organization and getting every function to think about it from marketing to product development to operations to legal and really making them own that and say, from the top, climate literacy is important to us. And because it's important to us at the very highest levels, You need to figure out a way to incorporate that into your business strategy, right? Your function. Marketing, I want you thinking about climate literacy. I want you making sure that everybody that's in your organization, your sub-org, understands what climate change, what climate risks will mean for your business. And could you list out the top five risks and the top five opportunities that we face from climate change? I think that's what it really
0: means. Yeah, it's so important and the way the words we use, the way we understand things and how widely That is understood across the investing community, but across the business community, so important. And as you said at the top, still a lot of uncertainty around the regulations, what things mean, all of that is so important. What's next for Janice Henderson and the sustainable investing initiatives that you're working on with your team? You know, we're
1: continuing to watch the regulatory landscape here in the US shape out. We know that there's a comment period open right now with the SEC with some of their disclosures. So we're continuing to watch that closely. We, we believe that the U.S. and the Asian market are still ripe for, for growth with sustainable solutions. And that, again, is not only going to be around the E. We've certainly got a few things in the pike around the environmental side, looking at low carbon or neutral carbon or, or negative carbon products, but also starting to focus a bit more on the S and seeing where that will go more long-term. How can we better measure the S- Within ESG at each of the companies, is there a way to create some sort of fund that would offer focus on companies that are doing a great job uh, on the social element of ESG, or are focused on creating a program that will get them to a better place? You know, if we look around at some of um, some of the industries like the legal industry or investments in finance, you're going to see a lot of misses on the S side of the equation. But there are a lot of industries and companies, like on the tech side, that are doing a great job today and are continuing to progress their agenda on the S, where they've got some excellent metrics out there on in- ensuring um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so, we're seeing uh, you know, where we can go with that, what we can learn from it, and, and where we can build out that side of the product set.
0: Cool. Well, we'll be looking out for it. And folks, follow what Marika Christopher and her team are doing at Janice Henderson. We'll link to her blog and and their ESG zone on their website in the show notes. And it's really been nice to have you on The Green Investor. Marika Christopher, the Senior Director of Product and Strategy and ESG for Janice Henderson Investors. Thanks so much for being on The Green Investor.
1: Thanks so much, Caleb. I appreciate it.
0: It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show where we dig into interesting facts and figures about green investing. And this week, we're looking at the newest wearable technology favored by design and climate experts, which is a mask for cows that captures methane gas. The bovine mass designer Zelp is one of four winners of the Terra Carta Design Lab Awards announced this week. The award, chaired by Prince Charles, among others, is associated with the Royal College of Art in the United Kingdom and is part of the Prince of Wales Sustainable Markets Initiative. Each winner receives £50,000, which is about $63,000, and mentoring from John Ivey, the former head of design for Apple, who serves as a chancellor of the Royal College of Art, as well as other members of the Sustainable Markets Initiative. Cowburps are a significant source of potent methane gas. And most solutions have focused on developing feed additives to cut emissions on the way in. The mass, developed by ZELP, which stands for Zero Emissions Livestock Project, captures methane with each burp. A catalyst oxidizes the gas and releases it into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and water vapor. The company estimates that the device can reduce methane emissions from cow belches by more than 50%. Somebody get those cows some tums. It's time to unpack the acronym, that part of the show where we deconstruct the alphabet soup that is green and sustainable investing. And we're going to keep it in the cow pasture this week, given the new mask by Zelp. This week's acronym is actually a gas, CH4- otherwise known as methane. Methane has more than 80 times the warming power of carbon dioxide over the first 20 years after it reaches the atmosphere. Even though CO2 has a longer lasting effect, methane is a main contributor to global warming in the near term, according to the Environmental Defense Fund. At least 25% of today's warming is driven by methane from human actions and cows, as we just learned, are also a pretty big contributor. Mask up, you mighty bovines! We're going to go out this week celebrating this week in environmental history. And even though it was last week, we're close enough to Earth Day to keep celebrating it. It deserves much more than just one day as far as green investors are concerned. And here's a little history of Earth Day that I found on earthday.org, which has been around since the late 1960s. In January 1969, Senator Gaylord Nelson, the junior senator from Wisconsin, who was already concerned about the human impact on the environment, and a few others, witnessed the ravages of a massive oil spill in Santa Barbara, California. Inspired by the student anti-war movement, Senator Nelson wanted to infuse the energy of student anti-war protests with an emerging public consciousness about air and water pollution. He announced the idea for a teach-in on college campuses to the national media and persuaded Pete McGloskey, a conservative-minded Republican congressman, to serve as his co-chair. They recruited Dennis Hayes, a young activist to organize the campus teach-ins, and they chose April 22, a weekday falling between spring break and final exams to maximize the greatest student participation. Earth Day inspired 20 million Americans at the time, 10% of the total population of the United States, to take to the streets, parks, and auditoriums to demonstrate against the impacts of 150 years of industrial development, which had left a growing legacy of serious human and health impacts. Thousands of colleges and universities organized protests against the deterioration of the environment, and there were massive coast-to-coast rallies in cities, towns, and communities. Today, Earth Day is widely recognized as the largest secular observance in the world, marked by more than 1 billion people every year as a day of action to change human behavior and create global, national, and local policy changes. Happy belated Earth Day, but let's see how long we can stretch this celebration out. Thanks for joining us on The Green Investor and special thanks to Marika Christopher of Janice Henderson Investors for joining the show. We're going to link to all the reports we mentioned in our show notes that you can find wherever you get your podcasts and on investopedia.com slash the green investor podcast. Rate, review and recommend us and please send us feedback to podcasts at investopedia.com. Keep it green and we'll talk again real soon.